Some glasses laying around. All right, we're going to try to read without them. I put them somewhere, and I don't remember where I put them. Actually, I think I, think I laid them back there. She's got it. That's the problem is when you've been in a place for too long, you start to feel like you live here, just leave your stuff everywhere. I couldn't remember where I put them. And I think every day that I stress out more, I'm losing more of my eyesight. I don't know what that's... I don't know if that's linked or what. Well, we are back in the the gospel of Mark. Um, I want to finish this thing. And I tell you, uh, this message, at least to me, it's challenging. It's not not like the the message I I, I have today is is, hard, actually. I'm going to have a hard time explaining the scriptures this morning, but I'm going to do my best. (coughs) My only hope is, and the only hope I have here... um, is that the Holy Spirit will just present uh, itself here as a teacher and really quicken you into the fullness of what we have to ponder today and ultimately what I hope will, will allow to sink into our hearts. It's not, it's not that the Scripture isn't plain, okay? It's not that the, the Scripture isn't plain, but it's, it's, it's more that our interpretation of it, uh, it becomes difficult. How we look at this scripture we're about to talk today, it's just very difficult. It, it's going to seem easy, but it's not. Uh, I find when I look at the scriptures today, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 38, it would seem so easy, and I wish it was, uh, but to me, I find question after question in it, which basically means we're just going to scratch the surface of it. Uh, it's going to take your entire life to really flesh out what this means, and and it's going to take some time with you sifting through it to really understand uh, the fullness thereof in it. And I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to break it into two parts and go at it from there. Uh, I'm afraid if we don't see, uh, if we don't, um, I'm, I'm afraid if we don't break it up into two parts, we won't see why there's some difficulty into the passage at all. Like it's just too easy. I could read the whole passage and we could try to touch the service, but it just is not going to do it credit. So it's, 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 uh, it's one I pondered a lot. I spent some time talking to Joy about it. I was like, I don't know how to approach this scripture. Like, it's not as cut and dry as, as Jesus makes it sound. And maybe it's cut and dry to Jesus, but I'm not God Almighty who knows everything and, and can see all and know all. And um, I'm just a country boy from East Texas trying to figure their life out too. Uh, and, and, and what I hope today uh, is to give you at least what God has given me. Uh, so we're going to read the scripture And then we're going to pray because I really need the prayer this morning to really unfold this. Mark 9, 38 through 41. Say amen if you're there. Good group this is. This is a good group. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons. But we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone gives you a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. Let's pray. Lord, I need you this morning. I need you to be upon my tongue. I need you to be upon my lips, God. I need you to be in my heart, God, so that the words that I speak will come out and be words that honor you, that bring productivity, God, that act as water to the seed. And allow something to be grown. Father, I can do nothing in and of myself, but through your Holy Spirit, God, I believe I can do much. Lord, take the words that you've planted in me, and now allow me to plant them on others. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's deal with what the disciples were facing first. Um, And then we'll deal with today's application of the Scripture Uh, We're only nine chapters into the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. There are only 12 disciples that are fully committed into following him around and learning from him. Yeah, there's many people who've seen his miracles. There's many who have met him, but they haven't studied intimately uh, around him like the disciples have. I mean, there's no doubt the disciples have the best uh, of Jesus. So it's foreign to the disciples to see someone else praying for a miracle in the name of Jesus. After all, what qualifies someone else to be able to do this? 
Uh, when did they sit and listen to Jesus intimately talk about things to come? How much instructions have somebody else heard when they've been so close? I mean, you got to remember the pride in these young men, too. They had just literally finished talking about which one of them was the greatest amongst themselves. And now they find that there are others that haven't had to walk in their shoes or even go through the same training as they had, and yet they're already doing the ministry and praying for people to get healed. I mean, come on, how dare they, right? What do they know? I remember uh, a pastor, Rod Parsley, kind of a TV evangelist uh, personality, but I remember him explaining one time about something he saw in his church. He goes, it never fails that the person who sat, he's, there's always this person in the back row that's been there 30 years that's mad at the prostitute who just got saved and like stands up and goes, I have a testimony. I got saved yesterday. Somebody came up on the street uh, uh, or somebody I met the other day heard that I got saved, gave me like a $2,000 check to get started. And the guy back there been saved for 30 years goes, ain't nobody giving me no $2,000 check. And he's bitter. Can't enjoy anybody's blessing. You keep, that's the thing. I've served God my whole life. How come they're getting more than me? Same, same attitude here. It's nothing new under the sun. The church still struggles with this. I go to church all the time. How come they're doing so well? I try to do everything right. This person does everything wrong. By the way, the Psalms are full of why did the wicked prosper, God? I do everything right. I'm around you all the time, and they're the one benefiting from everything. They get to say they're Christian, benefit from everything they say about being Christian. I try to be Christian, and my life's hard. God, why? This has always been around. And so what do they do? What do the disciples do? Well, they run and tell. They tell Jesus, and it stops him uh, in, in his tracks. Now, it's a simple saying, one that we're familiar with, and one I'm pretty sure that we all practice. Anyone who is not against us is for us. Right? That sounds pretty healthy. It sounds right. They're not against me, so I'm going to just take it that they're for me. Pretty sure that's just good wisdom. And Jesus makes it seem simple, and maybe it was for this incident. This person was praying for someone to be set free from demons and doing so in the name of Jesus. It's not a bad thing. There is an exclusivity when it comes to those who mark themselves with the name of Jesus. When you mark yourself with the name of Jesus, you say who you really are. You're declaring yourself to be one with Christ. You're calling upon His name. You're, you're, you're literally calling upon His authority. And this idea really shoots off around Acts chapter 12 or 13 when the believers uh, in Antioch viewed Jesus as the Christ. Now the Hebrew word is Yeshua or Yahweh, whatever you want to call it right in there, Yeshua. And then you combine the Greek word Christos, which is where they get Christ. So they combine these two words together, Jesus Christ and the, the, the Christian or the, the people of Antioch who were saved, who believed Jesus was Lord, came up with the word Christian. And this is where it begins. People started to associate themselves with Christ by calling themselves under the name of Christ. This same term is used today to describe those who use the name of Jesus Christ to cast out demons. They're Christians. But it's not that simple, is it? In Jerusalem, during the days of Jesus, uh, that he, when he walked upon the earth, there were all kinds of pagan religions for sure. But there weren't any that skewed the word of God into a false religion. There's no Bible that's been formed yet. I mean, there's a Torah, there's an Old Testament scrolls and things like this. But this idea that we're going to skew Christianity has not yet happened because Christianity has not yet taken place. It is happening. Jesus is here. He's not gone yet where the Bible's being written. New Testament stuff is being written. It's not happened yet. At this point in history, it's pretty riddled with all kinds of made-up gods and made-up religions. There's the mythic Greek stuff. There's pagan gods of the Philistines. But there is no, like, branches. There's, like, no Mormonism. There's no Jehovah's Witness. There's no these false Christianities that have broken out. There's none of these things yet. It's just other type gods and other type religions. Today, however, we have an entirely different world where there are many of the same things in it. But one thing is sure different. There are many here that they say they follow Jesus, but by either their testimony or by their actions or by their decree, they are questionable in their walk. Amen? We know that there's churches out there with the names on it that do not, they call upon the name of Jesus, but they are not of Jesus. But isn't it as simple as, well, they're not against us. 
Now listen, I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to tell you why. I've just, I, I could be pointed. There's a lot of things I'm going to disagree with. There's some things I'm going to say that are false religions. I, could, I feel like I could say those things because that's what I really believe. When you get down to it, uh, uh, I pray that you study in some of those areas because I think it's good to be apologetic in some of those areas. But even I am conflicted in knowing who exactly is against us. Allow me to present what conflicts me, and maybe in this we can all relate to each other. Why well, I won't just say, this is what, you know, this is it, this is the line I draw, uh, and, and let me explain why. I'm good with trusting someone with prayer. I'm, I'm good with them using the name of Jesus. Where it gets tough for me is that I also know that someone who associates themselves with Jesus, who walks with Jesus, is supposed to be a new creation the Bible says that when we get saved, that we are transformed from the inside out, and we are to become Christ. Listen, I know that space is big on how that happens, but there should be a transformation. There should be something that happens on the inside that causes me to see something physically happen on the outside. How, how, how they are isn't how they were, you know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying uh, that they have to be perfect or that they don't uh, have setbacks, but that there is an active work of the Holy Spirit in their life, and the evidence is visible and audible. There has to be something visible and audible happening in your life. There needs to be some proof, some proof. After all, how were you when you got saved? And I mean, when you really realize what Jesus had done for you, did you change you know, I can honestly say when I said the words of salvation, you know, when they say, oh, you pray this prayer, and I prayed the prayer, can I tell you I didn't feel anything? And you know what I think I needed to? I think I needed to feel something. Like I, people say, well, man, I feel the freedom of Jesus. I did not feel the freedom of Jesus when I said, Lord, come into my heart. You know when I felt it? When I was filled by the Holy Spirit. When God sealed in me, within me salvation. It changed me. I have never been the same. I can never go back to anything else. I, I think even if this whole thing was to wash up, I will still be the preacher. Oh, I might not have a church, but I will still be the preacher. I don't know any other way. And I live to tell people about Jesus Christ now. There is something that happened within me. And it's changed me forever. And it's, it's visible. Like, you won't see it because this is all you've ever seen. But when I go home to Kaufman, Texas, where I sold drugs where I drank all the time, where I was everybody's worst nightmare fighting and everything else, where I got in trouble all the time. Every time I see anybody from the old days, you know, the first thing they say to me, yeah, you're a pastor? Whoa, I didn't see that coming. That's the first thing they say to me every time. Man, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, I know. I, I've changed. You physically see it now. Something happened. There is conflict within me when I see the contrary, however. If I don't see change, but I hear the words of change, there's conflict within me. I don't know to believe you. It's like, you're, come on, we've all got kids who've done something, Henri. I hear you're telling me something, but something doesn't add up. You ever felt that when your kid tells you something? You know it. You know it's not right. You know it's a lie. Your kid's looking you straight in the face and trying to tell you like, like, they, like they're trying to believe their own lie. But you know it. No matter how much somebody says they know Jesus if something feels uh, there's conflict within or you see the contrary, right? And so how I access uh, the conflict depends on the situation too. Is the person I see that says they believe in the pew of the church? Now this is, I'm telling you how I process this. So when I see somebody who says they're saved but they're not saved, are they in the pew or are they in the pulpit? Because there's a difference. There's how I would deal with that, how I would process that, how I would approach that are entirely different. Because if it's so, if it's in the pew, then definitely I don't want to interrupt them too much, but rather have patience that God is going to work this out. I am sympathetic to those who are working out their salvation life. I told somebody the other day, it doesn't happen overnight. I smoked, I smoked pot for the first four years of my salvation. Off and on, trying to get rid of it, trying to get it out of my life. And then when is that? It's alcohol trying to creep back in, trying to exchange one for the other. But I constantly was making strides. You know, the one thing I wouldn't give up on is Jesus. I'm going to keep coming to church. I'm going to, every time I fall, I'm going to get back up. Every time I fall down, I'm going to stand back up. Jesus, thank you for helping me out. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. Because something happened inside of me that says, Jesus is real. This is real. And so, you know what I'm grateful for? I'm grateful that in that time, 
nobody, nobody was mean to me. Well, you're not saved. Look at how you act. Look at how you behave. Look at what's going on in your life. Look at all these things. It would have been easy to point out all my flaws. But you know what? God was patient. God knew that if he walked with me long enough, that the things I struggled with then weren't going to be the things I struggled with later. He was patient with me. And so I am sympathetic towards those who are early on in their walk. I remember what it was like to work out mine. (coughs) I'm still working it out. I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. I remind myself that all we need is some room for growth and room to make mistakes. Amen? Oh, man, I should have got a big amen on that. All we need is room for growth and room for making mistakes. Come on. This is a moment where the grace of God is poured out in our life to help us. Because if God wanted to condemn us, he could do it every time we sin, but he doesn't. Instead, he chooses grace and patience. Now, the alternate situation is this, where my heart is troubled, maybe confused a bit, is how we deal with this when this person's a pastor. How do we deal with this when we see the conflict, when we see this in a person of leadership within the church? And while I don't think it's fair to assume or place upon any pastor the idea that they're perfect, that's just not true, they should at least be above reproach. Now, I I don't think that just because it's smart. I think that because the Apostle Paul laid the groundwork for Christian leadership here in the church. All right, that's not me saying this. This is the Apostle Paul as the church was being formed. So remember when Jesus said this, well, hey, if they're not against us, they're for us. Well, wait a minute. No, remind yourself, there are no Christian churches when Jesus said this. So how does this work? How do you navigate what Jesus said into the book of Acts? Because now if we place everybody who just uses the name of Jesus in a leadership position... Come on. Come on. And here's what, here's what happened, right? Paul has to now navigate this. Jesus leaves his disciples to now navigate. How do you deal with this? How do we deal with this? And here's what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. He said, this is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not, uh, not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud. And the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. What is the devil's trap right there when he says that? Is reputation. Love a reputation more than he actually loves being godly. It's easy to do when that's what you seek, a good reputation. When we see Christian leadership that works against what the Bible has biblically set up as a principled leadership, there is conflict within me and most others. That the people that are using the name of Jesus for their platform, are are they for us or are they against us? Are they using the name of Jesus on the platform for gain? That becomes the question. This is where where you get other religions real quick. You know, if you want to hit on Mormonism, Joseph Smith, he ended up gaining the platform where he had people. What happened? He received his own little vision, his own little dream, and he created a whole religion out of his own little dream and his own little vision. That's what happened. Started out as the right thing. Started out as a man of God, but a man of God who had a little bit of power, a little bit of knowledge on the Scripture. David Koresh. You know what they say about David Koresh? If you don't know who that is, that's the, they called him Waco Jesus back in the day. It was the big compound in, compound in Waco. They said at the age of 21 he had memorized the entire Bible, which made him a very scary and very powerful man. But he was a 21-year-old with that much knowledge. And he had no maturity in which now to act in knowledge. And he used the knowledge he had to control people. And what does the Bible say? Don't stick a young man in that position. It's not that the young man ain't smart. There's young men that are highly smart enough to do the job. But it doesn't mean they have the right heart for the job. You know, one of the things I've often said is what, where I think I fall short because I've been the violent man early in my life. And I've been, I always feel like I'm never worthy of the pulpit. And I've always, I always just feel like that. I've also always felt like I came from the pew and into the pulpit. And, and the, the guys that I tend to put around me, guys like Michael, guys like Robert, or guys that always, I've always thought, man, I just want guys with great hearts. 
A gift is awesome. And both, both Michael and Robert, they're highly gifted individuals, but the one thing I value more than anything else is a good heart. Because you can't change that thing. That it is what it is. Like God, there's something there where God has got a hold of them via the Holy Spirit, right? Gives them holy guilt when anything bad happens. Like it keeps them from doing something wrong. Like there's something that, and you can recognize it real quick. You can see it. But we even then have to be careful. Like how much do you want to stick that in front of somebody? The temptation of reputation, the temptation of power. The denta- like he says, must not love money. Why? Because pastors can get paid too. And the temptation of money can make a man comfortable. And if you're not careful, and I, which I think is the, one of the biggest problems with the American church today, American church today is so comfortable it doesn't do anything anymore. It doesn't evangelize, doesn't do anything. The church does it all for them. And the worst part about it is I believe, that, and you know, we know my whole rant on this, I believe that the church has palsied its people. And the pastors who keep doing all the work of the ministry for its people, advertising, marketing, and everything they can to make people come so that their people never have to actually evangelize and tell people to come. We took the relationship side of the ministry, the relationship side of evangelism, what Jesus told us to do, and we've outsourced it now to a conglomeration that actually does it for us. And we wonder why the church doesn't grow. We wonder why the church isn't relational. This comes from the greed of such things, the greed of success. The greed of looking popular and looking successful. That's what it comes from. It stems from it. It's massive warnings, right? Are people using their platform for uh, gain? It's not the first time it's thought about. Like, do you remember what happened after Jesus ascended and the disciples were doing miracles? You remember how all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's gone out, you know, and the shadow of Peter walks by and people are getting healed and all these great things happen? Do you think, listen, the con men come out right after that. Remember Simon the Magician? If you don't listen, Acts 8, 14 through 23, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid hands on these believers. They received the Holy Spirit. Here we go. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that whenever I lay hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you, thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. If Simon would have just started using the name of Jesus, do you think miracles would have happened? Yes. Because God will use anybody. <laughs> I, always, I always think that's amazing. Like, people, I can't, you know, no way any of that's real. Why not? Why can't somebody get healed by somebody that's bad? God does all the healing. It's all God. God chooses to use whoever he wants to use. He'll use the wicked to bless the, bless the, the, the righteous. God does whatever he wants to. Sure, there's going to, does that make the man godly? No. Does that make the messenger any more godly? No. But God will do stuff like this. And it might have even changed the heart of Simon, but judging by Peter's reaction and his noted words in Scripture, God doesn't reward people who look to take advantage of God's people or only just use the name of Jesus as a profitable platform, whether financially or otherwise. But it's happening. It's happening. Well, if they're not against us, they're for us. Are they for us? You see where I'm getting confused? You see where it's, 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 it's not as easy as are they for us or are they against us? It was easy when Jesus said it because there was nobody else. Now there's everybody. How do you navigate a world where everybody's trying to tell you there's somebody? I mean, really. I mean, how do you navigate that? How do you know which ones are the good ones and which ones are the bad ones? Because they're clever, man. You ever heard of the saying, the wolves in, in uh, sheep's clothing? Man, are they clever. Some of the best charlatans we've ever seen are so clever. They're clever. And they're allowed their moment, man. God allows them. Pe- God allows them. God allows it to take place. I was recently looking at the different speakers at this year's youth camp. I'm about to get personal a little bit now. For over a decade now, I've attended Lakeview Camp in Maypearl, Texas. I'm getting old. I mean, I probably would be, if I was to go this year, it's going to be like, it would be 14th or 15th year. Forever. Forever. I'm going to camp forever. Uh, 
I, I don't recognize all the young preachers out there today. I've kind of stepped away from a little bit from knowing a lot of them because I'm getting older. And they don't bring in guys my age to come preach to youth anymore. Back when I was in my 30s, recognized everybody, knew everybody. As I'm getting older, I, I don't recognize all these faces. So I do what everyone else does is I'm looking at all the preachers who are going to preach all the different camps. I already know who Michael's going to pick out. He's looking at Jenny Mayo. She's awesome. But I wanted to know a little bit about the other ones. I do what everybody else does. What does everybody else do when you know somebody? You Google them. Sorry, right, I Google them. There are always such great bios written about them on the page, but I was curious as to, you know, like where they pastor and to see what kind of ministries they're sitting under, right? Because if we're going to go put kids that sit underneath people, surely we've investigated a little bit about the ministries they're a part of, right? I mean, that would just make sense. And so um, most camps are always trying to get like the most cutting edge or the best speaker they can to kids. And I believe, I believe in camp and I believe uh, I've been to many camps with great speakers. Uh, this year, I noticed one speaker that I didn't recognize the name. Uh, but after researching a little bit, I recognized the church. Now, it's a well-known uh, church in New York City. So, I mean, that's how I was able to recognize, like, oh, okay, it comes from this church, all right. Uh, and then I was like, but I think I remember who the pastor is. The pastor is Carl Lentz, and he's pretty well-known. Now, he's well-known to me not because he has a large church, which he does, uh, not because he has this young demographic of, like, uh, 18 to like 27-year-olds, and he doesn't have pretty much anybody over that unless maybe just a little bit. Uh, it's this young demographic. Uh, he's not known because he has great singing or even that he's a great preacher, which a lot of people would say he is. He's known to me because TMZ broke a story about last year about Pastor Lentz and Justin Bieber were doing shots in a bar together, and Justin Bieber had a little bit too much to drink, and he began stripping for a woman there. Yeah. And there were photos... Uh, not of just Justin, but there with a shot glass in his hand, it's Pastor Carl Lentz. And this, was the, this wasn't the first time that he had had some controversy in his church. Now, he had caught a little bit of trouble. See, he's, a, he's, a, like a, uh, uh, he's almost like a satellite church of a bigger church. Uh, but he had been in some controversy before uh, when a story came out in a Christian publication over the homosexual worship couple that they hired to lead worship. Now, normally, an unknown man with an unknown church wouldn't make waves, but it did because the church's name was recognizable. The church's name is called Hillsong, New York City. Ever heard of Hillsongs? Yeah, they're a branch of the Hillstrong Australia. And when the whole worship leader thing came out, Brian Houston of Hillstrong Australia had to sit the young man down and say, what are you doing? We, they had to come out with a statement saying, no, we're not like that. Are you sure? Because the guys that are coming out of your ministry are... Are you sure that's what you're teaching? Right? Listen, I could go on and on about this pastor. I'm not going to sit a whole bunch on this. Uh, he's made himself comfortable in the celebrity world and just the world in general. But again, I fall back to the scripture and the difficulty of navigating it today. Is this guy for us? Is this guy for us? You see, you see where I'm getting at today? Like, I wish it was so cut and dry. Don't you, don't you wish it was just black and white? Is this guy for us? Is this guy, oh, like, just young? It, 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 what's going on here? Is he just confused? I reflect on the words of Paul. A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. While he may burst, uh, maybe burst in Scripture, uh, Pastor Lentz, his age and the culture works against him. And unfortunately, in my opinion, it works about anybody who sits underneath him, too. And it makes me scared, like, for the, for the, the you know, I, I sent a letter out to the DYD of the Assemblies of God and said, hey, do you know who this guy is? You know who you're bringing in? I just want you to know because, man, you think I'm the only guy that's going to notice. There's going to be some senior pastor that's got a lot more grayer hair than me that's going to wonder why a guy who sits under Pastor Carl Lentz and the whole thing with homosexual worship leaders and drinking it uh, with celebrities is going to want to hear his, his kids are being taught by one of their ministry leaders. I mean, some things you have to do, but I'm not saying I'm against him. I'm not saying he's against us. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if he's just young. I don't know. And this is where we find ourselves today. <laughs> We're trying to navigate this stuff, man. This is like in, the, in some of the scriptures in the past I can bring to you, there's a lot of things I can just navigate, like that really apply to your life. But, man, when you look out and you're looking at all this stuff that people post on Facebook about other pastors and about other things, what do you really know? Are you just taking everybody's word that comes off Facebook? What do you really know? 
I only stated what the news reported. I've only stated the facts that the news reported. That's all I've stated about that young man. I don't know him. I, I think I, from looking him up a little bit, I think he has a zeal for the Lord. Is he for us? I think so. I think so. Is he confused? Absolutely. Is he young? Yes. Obviously has no accountability. Is that his fault? Some. But Hillsong Australia kind of has some responsibility there by not placing somebody over the top of him to control him. Because if he only has people his age, it's even worse. That dude needs a governing board that's like 60 and up, man. That's a wild child running loose. That's got a, that's got a lot of knowledge. He's like a David Koresh, not bad way. Like He has knowledge. He has a massive amount of scripture knowledge, but he's, it's, it's tainted by the culture. It's where we find ourselves. And I really see this passage of scriptures as something that's got to be navigated with the greatest of caution. And so I'm stepping lightly. I, I don't know that this guy's bad. I'm not saying that he's bad. I don't know that he's not for us. I think he very well could be for us. And I think one thing's for sure, we have to lean towards grace first. Lest we cause someone to stumble. Even if we are to correct men like this, it would be foolish to think that he was doing this just for the platform. He could literally, if you listen to him talk, you could you hear in his heart what would seem to be compassion, trying to reach those people that are unreachable because, because the gospel is so plain in some, some things. And while there might be some inward lust there, obviously uh, uh, concerning maybe some of the celebrity stuff, he still uses the name of Jesus to set people free. He still uses the name of Jesus to set people free. His church is not the church of Mormons. His church isn't the church of Jehovah's Witness. He is a Christian church. And I'm tempted scripturally to come against him, right? Because there's a lot of things I can see in the scripture this guy doesn't know or, or he's struggling with or whatever, right? But the grace of God reminds me that the scripture we read this morning doesn't just end in are they for us or against us, right? No, there's more. Look back at Mark 9, 42 through 48. Listen to what Jesus says right here. And this is why you have to have caution before you step out there and run your mouth up against something. Uh, because listen to what Jesus says. Verse 42. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall in sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never ceases out. I'm going to tell you, if Jesus doesn't talk about hell, man, he, talks, <laughs> he lays it out there. Why, we don't win by beating each other up. Christians are known. You've heard the saying. Christians kill their wounded. There's no such thing. Man, Christian, nobody hurts Christians like Christians. We kill our wounded. Pastor gets hurt, does something dumb, which by the way, the, the irony of the pastoral deal, the platform, is when we see a pastor do something dumb, we're immediately like, we'll hang on to that thing forever. But we forget that that's happening all in our church. There's not, there's, I mean, divorce is everywhere. Affairs are happening all the time. Lust and adultery, that's happening all the time. Like the divorce rate's 50% in the church as it is in the world. It's the same. It's the same. Well, you think it's different in the pulpit? They say that there's 1,500 people get out of the, uh, get out of the ministry every year. Every year. They say that 50% of pastors would quit right now if they could just, if they knew how to do a job. <laughs> They've been pastoring so long, they don't have a trade. So they're scared to death of how to go find a paycheck. And so they stay in the pulpit. Wonder why your churches, little churches are dying all over? Because they won't leave. They don't know how to do anything else, and they need the money. And you better be careful before you start judging them. You know, one of the things I'm quickly reminded of, especially because I've seen men who were valiant men, that were men that were great in battle at one day. And then when you need them the most, man, they cowed down to confrontation. They just weren't going to be confronting. And I, and I remember being young, being so angry at that. But you know what the Lord has shown me on that through the process of just time and, and age and life? 
is that if I'm not careful, I'll be just like it. Because there comes a time in all of us where we don't want to fight anymore. And we just assume lay down and lift up our hands one more time. You don't believe me? Look at Saul. Saul started out, by the way, Saul killed his thousands. Saul raised up a kingdom, not David. Saul did that. David took it over and grew it bigger, which is awesome. But he didn't build it. Saul did. And when Saul reached the age where he was too scared to go out and fight giants anymore, another era arose. All right? And look at David. When David got old, what started to happen? His whole house came apart. He quit paying attention to some of his fatherly duties, and Absalom tries to overtake him. And he had to get a wake-up call again on how to go back and take over the kingdom again. But even in his old days, when, when uh, Solomon was going to come back in, what happened then? There was all kinds of race of who's going to be the king. We're going to take advantage of while David's sick and down. There comes a time in all of us, man, where the fight leaves us, and it has to be upon the next. We better be ready. I can't judge anybody for not having the fight left within them when they've been fighting their whole life. It's sad to me. Like, I hate watching it. You know who I, I, I kind of idolize in the Bible? It makes me not idolize David. It makes me not You know who I idolize? Caleb. I want to be 80 and still ready to knock out a giant in a heartbeat. That's who I want to be. Like, he, like, I remember this guy. His name was Dr. Uh, Robert Ball. And he was this little guy. He's about this big. He's a little skinny dude. And um, Joy's grandfather asked him to come preach. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, this guy's going to, I was young and, and, you know, just not, not full of wisdom and patience. And, and, and I'm watching this guy. I'm thinking, man, it's taking him forever to get up to the pulpit. <laughs> like, he's so old. And, uh, uh, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I don't know what this is going to be like. And he, he grabs his Bible and he's like, you know, he takes that like one inch step. And you're like, man, when he gets up there, I don't know, what, what can he do? He's going to die. I mean, you're like, like he just looks like he's going to take everything he's got to get up there. He's like in his 80, late 80s, early 90s. I mean, he's, he's, he just looked old, right? And he gets up there and he holds that Bible. Next thing I know, that dude starts yelling and preaching, holding that Bible in the air, and he's jumping on one foot. And I'm like, oh, and he saved all that energy for up there is what he did. <laughs> I like, I like, he's going to die right here. We're going to watch him die, like praising the Lord. That's going to happen. And after that, he'd come preach one more time. And, and, uh, and uh, I would tell my, my grandfather-in-law, I would tell him, like, are you bringing the fireball today? He said, fireball? Yeah, Dr. Ball, man. That's what I call him, the fireball. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, that guy starts preaching. And it was just the same stuff you always heard. Like, Jesus is, you know, Jesus is this Christ. Jesus is going to save us. I mean, it's just the same stuff you hear. Like, nothing, nothing just deep. It didn't have to be deep because, man, he lit a match in the room, man. He lit a match in the room. I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. At 80 and 90 years old, I can still light a match in the room. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> This is where we have to be. We have to watch out for stuff like this. This is people that use the name of Jesus. We have to be very careful, so careful. We don't win by beating each other up. We only win when we love one another. It's like the best part of the whole thing, really, man. So we only live when we love one another. How we correct and how we treat others who are confused or who are having trouble navigating the Christian life also says a lot about how changed we really are. In my almost 20 years of being discipled by Jesus, the two ingredients or tactics, if you will, Jesus has employed successfully in my life and into the life of others has been patience and grace. Just has. Those two attributes have done more for my life than a stern rebuke ever has. The rebuke is a last resort. Thus, it's always the talk of the prophet and not the pastor. And when I talk about a rebuke, I always talk about a rebuke to the church. There's a lot of things I get upset at the church about, the church in general. Pastors who have fallen into this, this lust for American success inside the church. And I do believe God will bring judgment. I think he already has the dwindling number of Christianity within America that, that uh, persecution is, is coming. There's no way to avoid it now. And it's because our pastors won't wake up. They've been lulled to sleep by money, security, comfort, direct TV, NFL, whatever you want to call it all. I can point the finger at so many things. There is a time for rebuke. 
but it isn't God's first resort. And it never should be yours either. I saw somebody last night. I had to like instant message them. They were, they were on Facebook and they were talking. There was the Pope and the Pope was talking to this little kid. He's like four, maybe five. And, and they try to get him up to the, the microphone to talk in front of everybody. But like, you know, come on, man. Four or five-year-old ain't going to do that. They're like scared to death. It's the Pope. I mean, if you're Catholic, that's a big deal. That's a big deal, man. And so, like, uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it, he, he tries to talk, but he can't. He's almost crying a little bit. And, the, and, the, and finally, the Pope calls him over there, and he just hugs him. And, the, and, he says, and he's whispering, just tell me, tell me what you want to say. And so the kid begins to tell him, man, I, I think we, you know, apparently the way the Pope tells the story is like, he says, the kid says that his dad was an atheist. However... The kid also said that the dad had all four kids baptized, that they had kind of been actively in the church, but that he felt like his dad really wasn't a believer, you know, and he was asking about whether his dad was in heaven. And, you know, the Pope had his answer, and it's not the most theologically correct answer, but one thing that upset me was like there was this other person who I know who I've watched, I've raised them since they were 15, right? They've got a ministry uh, license uh, to preach. And they were like, see, this is why this is, because this is so theologically wrong, da-da-da. And I was like, when was, and, and I messaged her, and I said, listen, when was the last time you held a four-year-old in your arm and talked to them about how their daddy died? Miss, miss 26-year-old with your first kid, how many kids have come to you about their dad's death, asking them at four years old where their dad is? How, if this is how you respond to that, like, like is there any sensitivity to you whatsoever into the moment? Because I'm going to tell you, like, I'm just going to be honest. Like, like I have some Calvinistic views about, about you know, uh, life and death and how this all works with God. And scripturally, there's things that are just fact, right? But you think that's the most consoling thing to say at a funeral? You think it's the most consoling thing to say when somebody's just lost their baby? Like, do babies go to heaven? I don't know. I don't know. The Bible says in, in, in the womb... Mother, you're conceived in sin, you're, you're, that your sin, as soon as you came out, you were. Like, do they, I don't know, but do you think I'm going to walk up to somebody who's lost a child and tell them, man, I don't know, they could be down there. Do you think that's what Jesus would do? I think the Pope did the best thing he could. Give me a hug. Well, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. And I don't think the Pope did either. And I think he said what he said out of compassion. And all I could see in her was like, so you're theologically right. Do you feel better? Are we right all the time? I mean, like, by the way, the devil quoted scripture right to Jesus, but was he right? No. How do you mean you know when you're, you know, so there's sometimes you're right and you're still wrong? I can be right about something, but how I approach it can be all wrong. And in that moment, I kind of felt like, man, I, gotta, I had to correct her a little bit. I was like, come on, man, have some compassion. Have some compassion about it. There's these things. Jesus takes this stuff seriously. So should you. I mean, look at, the, look at the language he uses. He says, if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. Does that sound serious enough? I mean, so if anybody falls, if you cause someone to stumble and they go into sin and never come back into the church, Jesus is going to say, that's on you, man. It'd be better that you die a gruesome death than to turn somebody away from the Lord. So how we navigate, are they with us or for us, is very important. And it can't just be so cut and dry. Because there are times when people need correction. I get that part. But how we correct, better, it better be important because God's very serious also about us not hurting them to the point where they don't want to come in towards Jesus either. I mean, Rob Bell, he wrote a book a while back where it was a horrible theological book. And when everybody read it, all his friends included, they were like, dude, it is theologically unsound. You need to get that book out of publication right now. And what it did, it released how he really thought. And it wasn't good. And everybody was so mean to that guy who was a genius storyteller. If you've ever seen any of the NUMA videos that he did, Oh, my goodness, guy's talented. And he just didn't have his theology right. But again, young, a young guy, late 20s, early 30s, ridiculously smart. 
knows the scripture, but needed guidance and mentoring and didn't have it. Maybe, maybe that's partly on him too, right? But people were so mean and so ugly and so vile to this guy, he left the ministry altogether. You know what he's doing today? He's writing movies and writing stuff for TV because he's that good a writer. How we approach people, how we deal with people is important. You can be right and still be wrong. I love it, man. Jesus sounds so serious when he says that kind of stuff. Like, if you, if you do this to one of my children, right? It sounds like a father. I, I wrote it down like, like he sounds like my dad. You better not hurt anyone else. Like my dad would purse his lips when he gets angry. He's going to be out here for help for heroes. Y'all don't tell him all this stuff. He's, he, he would always look at us. You knew when my dad was mad because he'd be like, his lips get all pursed. And we're like, oh, man, he's going to kill us. Like we just run right then, right? You better not hurt anyone else or keep anyone else from knowing me. And while you're at it, you better not see him. That's what he's like said right there. That whole paragraph is summed up just like that. You better not hurt anybody else. Or keep anybody away from me. And you know what? You better not sin either. Because it's all bad. It's all bad. It's like what he says, you know? And the scary part is the seriousness view that Jesus has of hell. I mean, it's just, he paints a scary place. If your hand sins, if your foot sins, if your eye sins, it's better to live handless, footless, and blind than go to hell. Like your existence as a blind man with no appendages would be better than life in hell. You think that's serious talk? You think, you think how we treat others is serious? Jesus takes it serious. Are they for us or against us? You better answer that question every time before you rebuke somebody. The urge to be right is so strong, but how you approach being right, how you approach correction or helping someone. By the way, if you haven't invested in their life, no point telling them anything. I don't listen to anybody I don't know. You know what? This total stranger came up to me and tried to tell me how it was on Facebook. I'm a changed man today. No. Nobody says that. Only people that can help you change are the ones closest enough. By the way, you know how you know that? Usually the ones that make you the maddest. They're usually the ones that have an emotional draw on you. They can make you angry. They can get after you. Let's bring worship. So how do you treat others? And I hope you answer this along the way. Like, how do you treat other people? Only you can answer that. Only you know that. Like, this is where you need to think. Are the words you're saying or the things you're posting or whatever, are they causing other people to stumble? I hope not. I mean, Jesus takes that stuff seriously. So how we approach things, we always approach lightly. Feels good to stomp a mud hole, I know, man. But it's not always the right thing to do. Most often it's not. Are the things you're doing causing others to stumble? Are they? I mean, like, that's a good question for you. Are you doing things that would cause other people to stumble? I think we're getting ready here. These are the questions we have to ponder. It's not easy to navigate that. It's not easy to navigate that. I am going to speak real quick. You make sure my wife just hold her out just real quick. Just hold her back. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you as a pastor. And, I, and I, I don't mean to change pace right here, right in the middle of everything with worship coming. But, uh, man, we need some help in children's ministry. My wife has carried it for the past three years. She is stressed out beyond belief. And it's, uh, man, everybody needs a break once in a while. You know, uh, and everybody's level of stress or level of anxiety of what you can handle is different um, but she needs a break and so and so I'd like to give her about a month where we could get some helpers in children's ministry during on Sundays and some commitments whether that's a rotation however that looks like uh, but I, uh, this morning uh, we're going to pray and then we'll have worship and when we pray I want you to pray if God's calling you or asking you to help in that area because we desperately need it um, and uh I think that's probably the most important pressing thing we have right now. She's just carrying a, a big thing, and I don't know if you're aware, but we've moved. And so in the middle of moving uh, uh, and trying to carry our household over there, uh, and uh, we're over there now, which is great, uh, but also just constantly uh, she's pulling worship for worship. She's doing, coming up with ideas every, uh, every Sunday for the last three years. 
uh, for Children's Church, and uh, uh, she's, man, been faithful, and she's been awesome, and she's been my right hand. But I also know that I, I will lose my right hand <laughs> if I overwork it. And we've reached the place where I think I've pushed upon her a lot. And as we grow, man, it happens. It's just part of life, part of life. Every pastor needs a break once in a while. And uh, she's basically our children's pastor, and she needs a break. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. We're going to have worship. You can talk to me after the service. Uh, we'll pray about it. But start next weekend, whether I have to bring the children in here or whatever that looks like, we're giving her a break for about a month at least to get her wits about her so she can quit losing her hair. Uh, so she can dye her hair because she's sick of all the grays. Don't, don't tell her I said that. Um, that's why I said keep her out of there. So I think we're good. Let's pray. Father, I give all those things to you. Lord, I know you'll work all those things out. I'm not worried about any of those things, God. Lord, you've sustained us this far. Lord, when we had no place to meet, you gave us a house. And Lord, when we needed it to grow bigger, you gave us a place. You engineered people's hearts to do things for us, God, that don't even come here, God. Why? Because you have made a way. You have put your hand upon this movement. You've put your hand upon this work, God. And, Father, you have blessed it. And in blessing it, God, you have opened the doors of people's hearts to help us do the ministry that is needed, God. Lord, I know you will provide. I know it. Speak it now in faith now. Lord, as we get ready to worship you, Lord, bring us back on track. Give us the heart of patience and grace. To bestow it on others to the amount that we would bestow it upon ourselves, God. To remember, God, that if they are not against us, that they are for us, God. And help us to discern that and navigate that, God, in Jesus' name. Let's worship. Father, we're so grateful for that.